Recently, I have been besieged with questions about discipleship and the gospel call, the true nature of faith, the danger of apostasy. Just this week on Friday, I gave a live two-hour interview on the radio, live radio. It's always kind of scary. And the, the guy who was interviewing me wanted to talk about the subject of apostasy. Then earlier in the week, I recorded a one-hour podcast with some young guys from South Texas who wanted to talk about the controversy that broke out in the late 1980s over lordship salvation. And that was basically a discussion of what genuine faith looks like. And I realized while I was talking to these guys from Texas that they weren't even born yet when John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, came out. That was in the late 1980s, and and that book launched a major controversy that lasted five or six years by today's standards because, you know, we have a new evangelical controversy every week or so on Twitter. You might think the debate over lordship salvation lasted a very long time because it, it stretched across several years. But in retrospect, I wish it had gone longer, not because I like controversy, but because I think it's an important issue. And if you were born in 1992 or later, and we do have folks like that in here, not many of you, but but if you were, it's possible that you've never really grappled with the issues of faith and discipleship and apostasy and the perseverance of the saints. And personally, I, I think communities of believers all around the world right now are extremely vulnerable to error on all of those doctrines yet again. Like I said, it's not that I like controversy. The word controversy has a negative sound to it, and, and, but this was a controversy that uh, truly made a significant beneficial impact. John MacArthur wrote two books that uh, were at the heart of this debate, The Gospel According to Jesus and The Gospel According to the Apostles, and those books and the ensuing controversy made a major positive difference in how evangelicals, really around the world, but mostly in America, how we talk about and proclaim the gospel, brought that issue to the forefront again and and resulted in a lot of correction. Prior to 1985 or so, Christian radio was loaded with what I would call easy believism, or, or actually I usually call it no lordship theology, because the popular idea was that when you're giving the gospel to unbelievers, you should be careful not to put any stress on the lordship of Christ. People were being taught that. They said, talk about him as savior, but don't bring up the issue of his lordship because faith in Christ, saving faith entails believing in him as savior, not surrendering to him as Lord, not following him as a learner and a disciple. That would be work salvation, they said. And the result was a significant watering down of the gospel message. And it went on for decades, actually. The no lordship doctrine was championed by Charles Ryrie, who wrote a book titled Balancing the Christian Life, and he included an entire chapter titled, Must Jesus Be Lord to Be Savior? And the clear answer he gave was a very detailed and explicit no. He said the lordship of Christ is an issue believers need to consider, but embracing Jesus as Lord is actually a 
a higher level of Christianity, a second step of faith, and you don't need to worry about that until you're ready to become a disciple. Being a believer, not a disciple, but just a believer settles the issue of your eternity. He said, even if you continue in a state of unrepentant, uh, the unrepentant pursuit of sin, being a disciple is a decision you make later. That's stage two, and that's where obedience comes in. And that was a common doctrine at the time. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But in the 1980s, most mainstream evangelical institutions looked to Dallas Theological Seminary as a sort of the bastion of evangelical orthodoxy. In many ways it was. It was the most conservative seminary, large seminary out there. And, and those views on salvation were commonplace. And certain voices were pushing them constantly to even more ridiculous extremes so that practically any nod of agreement to the most truncated portrayal of Christ was regarded as authentic saving faith. By 1995, John MacArthur had written those two books on the subject, and other men, including James Montgomery Boyce and R.C. Sproul, had likewise spoken out against the no lordship doctrine. And in, in my judgment, that controversy was one of the first catalysts that sparked what people now refer to as the Reformed resurgence, a, a renewed emphasis on justification by faith and the sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Christ, plus a more robust gospel presentation than the old line, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But the generation that is now coming into leadership in the evangelical movement was born after some of the key doctrinal debates were published and being widely read. So it, perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that church leaders today don't seem all that well equipped to fight off the erosion of gospel conviction that seems to be overtaking the evangelical movement once again. So you have a slightly different flavor of watered-down doctrine now on the rise. And it was predictable. It isn't as if we didn't see it coming or warn about it. We've been saying for years that too many church leaders seem more concerned about attendance figures than they are about the soundness of their teaching. They teach what they think will attract unbelievers rather than feeding their sheep, and they'll talk nonstop about how vital it is to watch and understand all the trends of pop culture. They, they urge their congregations to adopt and redeem just about every new fad. It, but there simply is not that same level of enthusiasm about handling Scripture carefully and teaching doctrine thoroughly and accurately. There are, there are exceptions to that, of course, and we know many of them. There are partners in ministry. But if you're looking for the kind of religion that is effortless and always agreeable, convenient, and cool. There are countless people out there today who will do their best to promise that. And the result is predictable. Churches are filled with false converts, people who profess to be Christians. They really think of themselves as Christians, but they don't have a clue what is involved in being a disciple of Christ. And in the past month, we've seen two high-profile cases of apostasy involving well-known evangelical celebrities, both of whom 
had attained fame and influence at a very young age, but each of them, just in the past couple of weeks, has announced that they are abandoning Christianity completely. And so everybody now is talking about apostasy and how do these guys abandon the faith? How do we understand that? Where does that fit in our understanding of faith and salvation? Specifically, how do we reconcile that with our belief in the perseverance of the saints? And so in the, in the weeks to come, perhaps for the remainder of the year, I want to walk through with you a series of texts and topics on the subject of discipleship. I think it's time to take up those issues again. In fact, some of you may remember that I, I dealt with this theme in a single message back in March. I preached a sermon right here from Matthew 11 on Jesus' call to discipleship, and all the themes that we're going to be looking at were more or less introduced in that message. So if you don't remember that, if you want a good introduction to the issues that we plan to be talking about in the weeks to come, you can download that sermon and listen to it. The title you're looking for is called Jesus Calling. It's not the book by that name. That's a bad book. But you'll find the sermon at thegracelifepulpit.com. That's where our sermons from here in Grace Life are stored, thegracelifepulpit.com. Anyway, I want to start this morning with another look from a different perspective this time at Jesus' summons to discipleship. And this time we'll consider a passage in Luke chapter 9, if you want to turn there. What kind of faith does the gospel call us to? When Jesus preached to unbelievers, did He summon them to surrender to His Lordship? Or, or did, he, did He regard a casual nod of agreement as true saving faith? Did He ever encourage half-hearted or double-minded people to keep following Him? What did He demand of those who wanted to become His disciples? And all of those questions are dealt with in this passage. Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. Here's the text, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now if you've, if you've been in grace life very long, you have often heard me say that the doctrine of justification by faith is the very heart of gospel truth. And nevertheless, what you see here and also in every passage where Jesus ever dealt with would-be disciples, what you see is that the faith Jesus calls us to is not merely a nod of agreement to the basic facts of gospel truth. Genuine faith has Christ as its object, not merely a, a checklist of soteriological facts. And furthermore, true faith is repentant faith. Real faith in the person of Christ is expressed in heartfelt devotion to Him as a person, not a list of facts, but Christ Himself. And if you truly, and truly see and receive Christ for who He is, 
Any lesser response is, a, is tantamount to a rejection of Him. Therefore, the gospel call to faith, if it's faithfully proclaimed, is also a summons to both repentance and discipleship. That's what the gospel calls us to, and that is exactly how Jesus preached. By the way, authentic Christian discipleship, by definition, is not a personal journey or a search. I, I hate the narcissistic self-centeredness of that kind of language. I cringe every time I hear someone say they're just on a journey searching for the truth. Authentic Christian discipleship is absolute devotion to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. A disciple is a, both a follower and a, a servant, and, and above all, a true disciple is a learner. That's actually what the word disciple means. It's a literal translation, learner, student. The Greek word is mathetes, and it means someone who studies under a teacher, someone who has a mentor or a teacher. Our English word disciple is borrowed directly from the Latin, a Latin word, discipulus, which literally means scholar. So being a disciple is all about learning. To pursue an experience while burning or suppressing the intellect, that is not discipleship. That's how most people approach Christianity, you know. They're looking for an experience. They don't care about doctrine. They don't really want to learn anything. They want to feel something. That is not discipleship. It's a form of sensuality. And Jesus Himself taught that in order to be His disciple, one must be a devoted learner. The truth learned must shape the passions and guide the will and thereby form the character of the person. More specifically, to be a disciple of Christ is to pursue the truth of Christ with a whole heart so that the end result is Christ-likeness. So in other words, Christian discipleship by definition cannot be a hobby. Christ Himself demands to be the ultimate priority for anyone who wishes to be His disciple. And all four Gospels stress this idea again and again throughout Christ's entire earthly ministry. He was engaged in the training of disciples. His mission, of course, as He, as he Himself stated it, was to seek and to save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. But His strategy was to instruct disciples and commission them to take the message far and wide. And multitudes followed Him because they were enthralled with His miracles or amazed by His astonishing ability to answer any question or win any debate. Swarming throngs of people began to follow Jesus everywhere. In fact, the, the sheer size of the crowds that followed Jesus would have thrilled any 21st century evangelical. You would have looked at that and said, wow. But Jesus Himself was unimpressed with the multitudes. And the bottom line is that most of those people, most of them, were following Jesus out of mere curiosity or, in Jesus' words, because they ate their fill of the loaves and fishes. They thought He had the power to make their lives easier, or they hoped that He would throw off the yoke of Roman bondage, or all of the above. And, and let's face it, as long as huge crowds were coming out to hear Him, many people came just because that's what everyone else was doing. You know, people tend to follow the mob, and they were doing that in Jesus' time as well. And Christ often deliberately did and said things to thin out the crowd. He was nothing at all like those 
church leaders today who are they're the opposite. They seem willing to do anything to attract larger crowds. You know, they purposely play to the demands and expectations of people who want to have their ears tickled. Exactly what Scripture tells us not to do. Jesus, by contrast, was unwilling to entertain people who were merely inquisitive. And so he purposely tried to chase away as many half-hearted, uncommitted curiosity seekers as he could. And the classic example of that is John 6. It's what that whole chapter is about. Keep a finger here in Luke 9. Let's look at John 6 for a minute. And I know this chapter is familiar to some of you. We come back to it a lot, but it is worth stressing. Look at John 6. At the start of that chapter, we'll just survey it here real quickly. Verse 2, we read that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, how large was this crowd? Well, according to, according to uh, verse 10, the multitude included 5,000, and that's 5,000 men. The number in Scripture doesn't seem to include women and children, so that's, in other words, 5,000 households. In fact, if you asked a Baptist to count, the number would be four times higher. (laughs) In any case, a multitude that size would, would more than fill any hillside in that part of Galilee. And so Jesus feeds them by an undeniable miracle that involved the miraculous multiplication of five barley loaves and two fish. That, of course, had the multitudes thinking about quitting their jobs and following Jesus full-time, if He could do that, right? Because if He could heal any sickness and miraculously make food come out of nowhere, then whatever kind of political or religious movement He wanted to start, they could keep it going indefinitely. I mean, He had everything He needed to do what most people would think in their wildest vision this would be great to do. John 6.15 says, they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king. He was just what they wanted, or so they thought. But it says, Jesus withdrew Himself to the mountain by Himself. The disciples, you remember, left by boat, and the multitudes saw Jesus go off alone. They watched the disciples leave by boat without Him. That was, you know, the night that Jesus came walking to them on the water, and He and the twelve went across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And the next day, the multitudes showed up there, looking for Jesus, shocked to find Him there. Verse 25, they found Him on the other side of the sea, and they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And from that point on, there's a turning point right there. He begins to thin out the crowd with teaching that was calculated to offend and repel anyone who was half-hearted. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. There's a claim of deity in that expression. He had just mentioned the manna, the, one of the greatest miracles of, of Exodus. You remember when bread literally came down from heaven, but he reminds them in verse 49 that those who ate the manna in the wilderness ultimately died. And he says he's greater than the manna because if anyone partakes of the true bread of life, verse 51, he will live forever. So he's talking about receiving Him and promising eternal life, but he's doing it in language that vividly describes eating His flesh and drinking His blood, 
words that in any context would be shocking, but this is particularly repulsive language to a Jewish audience. And by the end of the chapter, John writes this, verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. And I can imagine people saying, why do you have to be, why do you have to put it in that kind of offensive language? You don't mean that literally. Why do you have to talk like that? And Jesus is left with just a few hangers-on and the twelve, and He turns to them and says, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? I mean, there's the door. This was the consistent pattern Jesus followed. All of His calls to discipleship were purposely cast in terms that were deliberately off-putting to anyone who was looking for a convenient religion or seeking a popular pathway through life. He repeatedly underscored the fact that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's Matthew 7, 14. That is the climactic invitation from the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 13, 24, He adds this, "'Strive to enter in through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able.'" Now follow this carefully. In that verse, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is undeniably talking about the way of salvation. This is not a stage two of Christianity. He says the way is hard that leads to life. He's not talking, He's not making the artificial distinction that so many people try to make today between believers and disciples, where the, you know, they suggest you can be a believer but not a disciple. Being a believer is, is not easy and commitment-free according to Jesus. You cannot simply take Jesus as Savior and then defer until later the choice of whether you're going to follow Him as Lord. And Jesus said everything He could to make that clear. Scripture knows nothing of that sort of two-tiered structure in the kingdom of God. A true believer, a true believer is a disciple. The gate that Jesus keeps speaking of here is the gateway to life, and no one goes through that gate who is not a disciple, a follower, and a student of Christ. And how narrow is that gate? Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Now think about that. The cross, of course, is an instrument of execution, signifying, obviously, death, but more than that, public humiliation, the loss of all worldly status, earthly respect, social respectability, all that is gone when you take up your cross. It's the total forfeiture of honor in the eyes of the secular world. Death on a cross was the ultimate dishonor total disgrace, severe torture, open mockery, and then death. And look at that other expression, let him deny himself. That's not talking about saying no to that second piece of pie. It's not mere self-denial in the sense of, you know, foregoing some bit of pleasure or privilege. He is calling for the repudiation of self, a total abdication of personal autonomy in favor of devotion to His teaching, obedience to His commandments. What Jesus is calling for here means absolute enslavement to the will of God. You know, Romans 6, 17 and 18, Paul says this, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, you are now slaves of righteousness. 
And that willing enslavement to the lordship of Christ is what discipleship is all about. Notice that every time it comes up, the subject is salvation. This is not talking about some advanced level of sanctification. You cannot be a genuine born-again Christian and think that you are exempt from the demands of discipleship. You find this theme throughout the Gospels. Every one of Jesus' calls to discipleship is essentially a, a summons to come and die, dying first of all to self, but more than that, literally, if necessary, forfeiting our lives for Christ's sake. Here's how Jesus put it, Matthew 10, verses 32 through 39. He said, "'Everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny before My Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you count the number of times he says the same thing in different ways? He's calling for absolute surrender to his lordship. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27. Here you have similar words, but even stronger language. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then our chapter, Luke 9, look at verses 23 and 24. This is the same message, different context. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in Luke 14:33, he adds this, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's extreme language, and every call is for absolute, unconditional surrender. And to borrow words from John MacArthur, when Jesus called people to follow Him, He was not seeking companions to be His sidekicks or admirers whom He could entertain with miracles. He was calling people to yield completely and unreservedly to His Lordship. What he's calling for is a renunciation of self-rule and self-will, and that is the only appropriate response to Jesus' call for disciples. Now, none of us respond perfectly. None of us can meet the standard there. It's It's a high standard, just like the law sets a high standard that is impossible for us. But it's at this point that the purveyors of the no lordship doctrine object, and they say, Well, look, if we're justified by faith alone, if we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, then submission to the Lordship of Christ cannot be mandatory. That's a work. But the answer to that is, no, it's not. It's what Jesus is calling for here is the natural fruit of genuine faith. And in fact, one of the chief identifying marks of authentic trust in Christ is a conscious repudiation of our own sinful defiance. That is what repentance is all about. That's what repentance means when Scripture calls us to repentance. We need to repudiate our defiance. 
Jesus never gave a word of encouragement or reassurance to anyone ever who was half-hearted, lukewarm, lazy, or lackadaisical when it came to the issue of discipleship. And our passage in Luke 9 is here just to make that point. So if you're not back there, turn back to Luke 9 and let's... That was a long rabbit trail, I realize that. But let's look at verses 57 through 62. This short passage, as I read it, you notice, records a series of three incidents that give us a classic illustration of how Jesus treated would-be disciples who really weren't ready to take up their crosses and follow. And here we meet a succession of three men who answered Christ's call to discipleship, but all of them were either half-hearted or double-minded, and Jesus turned them all away. One of them, verse 57, was too quick to volunteer. Another one, verse 59, wanted to stall, and one of them, verse 61, was too attached to his home and possessions. So let's call them the guy who was too hasty, the guy who was too hesitant, and the guy who was too homebound. Three people here, and I'll forewarn you, Jesus' response to each of these would-be disciples might come across to you as abrupt, unfeeling, harsh, maybe even insensitive. It lacks any hint of sympathy or patience, but I hope what you take away from this passage is a sense of the absolute urgency and the gravity of Christ's call to discipleship. He is calling for a wholehearted response. No half-hearted response will do. So let's see what he's teaching here. First, notice the guy who was too hasty. Here was a man who, to all outward appearances, is quite eager to follow Christ. He's over-eager, in fact. He hadn't counted the cost. He brashly approaches Christ and makes a promise that he's not really prepared to keep. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus reminds him that discipleship is going to mean for him a life of extreme inconvenience. Verse 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You really want to follow me into that? That's the idea. A life of obedience to the Lord doesn't guarantee a life of comfort and ease, no matter what you hear on Christian television. And in fact, more often than not, following Christ means the opposite. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, notice, this man used the right expression, I'll follow you wherever you go. That is the exact expression used in Revelation 14, verse 4, to describe the faithfulness of the 144,000. Here's Revelation 14, 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So the man uses an expression that is a fair description of what authentic faith looks like. It's a, a willingness to follow Christ anywhere, even unto death. It's like the heroes of faith that are described in Hebrews 11. In fact, listen, Hebrews 11, 35 through 38, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sh skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, 
mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's all pretty foreign to us, isn't it, here in Southern California? The writer of Hebrews goes on to point out that many of those saints, although they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Those are his exact words. In this earthly life, they did not receive the promise. Their heavenly reward is going to be great, but notice the defining feature of their faith. This is the central point Hebrews 11 is making. The defining feature of all true faith is a willingness to suffer for the Lord's sake. By definition, saving faith involves a willingness to go anywhere, suffer anything, forego any convenience for Christ's sake. And this man in Luke 9 had not even considered any of that. He hadn't counted the cost of discipleship. The truth is, uh, of this is, is particularly hard for people in our culture, people who live in this age of convenience. It's, this is hard for us to absorb. Our daily lives, even compared to those of our great-grandparents, our daily lives are unbelievably comfortable. Imagine life without air conditioning. We have that occasionally here in Grace Life. And people complain. Imagine life without air conditioning, without wall-to-wall carpeting, without running hot water, without electrical appliances, automobiles, computers, iPhones, iPads, or any of the modern conveniences that you and I now regard as necessities. Our grandparents, people just a few generations ago, had none of those things. Our own ancestors would probably have regarded our lifestyle as unbelievably luxurious. But we think we're entitled to the best of life's comforts, and we spend major portions of our lives in pursuit of greater and greater ease. And if we're not careful, that becomes a serious impediment to our walk with Christ. Not to denigrate life's conveniences, they're a wonderful blessing and there's certainly nothing wrong with thankfully accepting them and enjoying them as gracious gifts from God's own hand because that is what they are. According to 1 Timothy 6.17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not like He wants us to live in perpetual misery. But Jesus, in fact, Jesus' words to this uh, over-eager follower, don't mean that the, he's not saying that the comforts of life are inherently sinful. There's nothing inherently superior either about the, the spirituality of some ascetic who renounces material comforts and, and leaves, leads a life of austerity and self-deprivation. But listen to all of 1 Timothy 6.17, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy." That verse, while it acknowledges that God is the one who gives us good things to enjoy, it's reminding us that whatever benefits we enjoy in this earthly life, they are fleeting and unreliable. They're gifts from God, not rights that we deserve, not not necessities in our lives. We should be thankful for them. And the sin is not in enjoying those things. The sin that we're all guilty of, I'm afraid, is ingratitude because we don't constantly recognize the God and, and the goodness of the God who gives us those things richly to enjoy. 
In fact, just 10 verses earlier than that verse, in 1 Timothy 6, 7, the apostle writes this, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content because, as he says in verse 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And, and the gain he's talking about in that verse is the increase of our sanctification. He's not talking about ease and recreation or pleasures and self-indulgence or any of the other things that worldly people tend to associate with wealth. If you're wanting to follow Christ because you imagine that godliness is a means of gain, or if you think being a Christian means a life of comfort and material prosperity, you won't be a follower very long because true Christianity is ultimately not about affluence or convenience. Obedience to Christ will inevitably take us far outside life's comfort zones. Again, the way that leads to life is a small gate and a narrow way, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12, by the way. Those who always choose the easy and convenient path are going to have a hard time here. Now look at the guy who was too hesitant. The second wannabe disciple appears on the scene, and this time it's Jesus who reaches out to him, verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. And the man replies with a request that at first glance sounds perfectly reasonable to most of us. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now to our ears, it sounds like, well, this guy's father had recently died, it's, hadn't had the funeral yet, and all he wants is a little time to bury the body. And if that were the case, Jesus' response would be extremely severe. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is not being as harsh as it might initially appear. This guy was not saying that his father was already dead or even that he was expected to die soon. He doesn't say that. This phrase, until I bury my father, is actually a figure of speech that was common in those times. It really means, until I receive my inheritance. This guy wanted to wait until he inherited his portion of the family estate, and then he said he would become a disciple. Give me a few years until I get all my wealth and everything in order, and then I'll follow you. Jesus made it clear that there's no room for that kind of double-mindedness if someone wants to follow Him. He who hesitates cannot be a disciple. He who wants to delay and make excuses, Jesus says, isn't fit for the kingdom. Now a third candidate for discipleship steps forward. We've had one who was too hasty, one who was too hesitant. This third would-be disciple is the guy who was too homebound, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Now again, you look at that at first glance and think, how could this not be a reasonable request? All he asks for is an opportunity to say goodbye to his family. It certainly sounds reasonable, right? In fact, you'd be concerned about someone who is so cold-hearted toward his family that he could just pick up and leave on such short notice without even saying goodbye. And yet, once again, Jesus' reply to this would-be disciple is a rebuke, and, and this is actually the strongest rebuke of any that these three received. 
Here again, our Lord stresses the single-mindedness that he demands of his followers. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, he's using an illustration that would have been very familiar in that culture. A plowman, uh, he's, he's pushing this blade pulled by an ox, and if he looks backward, he'll cut a crooked furrow. It won't work. He'll mess up. Plowing is a simple task, but it requires great concentration on the work, and you always have to have a forward look. You can't look back. Those whose hearts are not in the chore don't make good plowmen. What does the idea of one who looks back, what biblical picture does that paint in your mind? I think of Lot's wife who looked back because she was reluctant to leave Sodom. And in that one moment of hesitation, judgment caught up with her. She was turned into a pillar of salt. I think this is a reminiscent thing of that. This Apparently there's a, a hint of worldly affection in this third guy's heart, and Jesus, who knows our hearts, knew it. No doubt this guy's attachment to his family was something more than it appears on the surface. Perhaps he knew his family was going to try to dissuade him from following Christ, or he's looking for an excuse to spend some time with them before he makes a final commitment. Maybe he's even secretly hoping they could give him a good reason to turn back and not follow Christ after all. Whatever it is, it's clear that Jesus knew this guy was double-minded. And the Greek expression here is a little bit complex. And it actually implies that this man was asking for something more than just a, a simple farewell for his friends and family. It's a reflexive verb, which in other words, literally it means this, let me first withdraw myself from matters at home. Like the second guy, he may have had the idea that he needed to defer following Christ until he had spent some time getting his personal affairs in order. In any case, Jesus, again, could see directly into this guy's heart, and it's clear from the answer he gave that the man was undecided about following Christ, and his plea was really nothing more than an excuse to delay. So Jesus calls him to obey immediately because the work of the kingdom must take priority over everything, including family. Matthew 10, 37 and 38 again, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And, and again, there's that verse where Jesus uses the word hate. You must hate your father and mother. He's not literally calling us to despise them. He's saying, if you're not committed to me so much that comparatively your attitude towards, and he says, your father, your mother, your family and this is the key, your own life you regard as virtually hatred compared to your commitment to me. That's what he's calling for. And in each of these three cases, Jesus is saying he tolerates no delay, no double-mindedness, no lukewarmness, no excuses. That is the nature of his call to discipleship. Jesus was not being unreasonable, and nor would he ever refuse a reasonable request to honor your parents or manage your earthly affairs as a faithful steward. Those are things he commended. So he's not demanding that his disciples be irresponsible or uncharitable to their families. He's simply underscoring for all potential disciples, 
the urgency of his calling and the wholehearted devotion that he requires of anyone who would follow him. And in fact, I want to compare this to an Old Testament story. Turn with me now to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. You had no clue I was going to go there, did you? This is that famous episode in the Old Testament, and it bears a close resemblance to this third man's request and actually helps us shed some light on what Jesus is doing here. So here's some context. Elijah is at the end of his ministry. He's had that famous meltdown, emotional meltdown, where he says to the Lord, I just want to die. And the Lord commissions him then to, or orders him then to commission Elijah as his successor and anoint a king and so on. He's basically telling Elijah, look, your life hasn't been a waste. Even though it seems you're the one guy left, I really have 10,000 in Israel who've never bowed the knee. And here's what you're going to do to perpetuate your ministry. And one of the key things was anoint Elisha to be your successor. And Elisha responds to that call with virtually the same request as this third would-be disciple. In fact, I wonder if the Luke 9 guy had this passage in mind because he probably felt like his request was justified because what he asks of Jesus is almost an exact echo of what Elijah, Elisha did when Elijah summoned him to follow. And notice in the Old Testament, there is no condemnation of Elisha for what he did. Let me read it to you. 1 Kings 19, I'll read verses 19 through 21. So he, that's Elijah, departed from there, that's Horeb where he'd gone to have this emotional meltdown. He departs from there, the Lord's given him this command, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed him, passed by him, and cast his cloak on him. The 12 yoke of oxen suggests that Elisha was from a wealthy and very comfortable, he lived a very comfortable life in a wealthy family. Despite three years of drought, his family had survived this. Now that the drought was over, he's plowing the field. It's a happy time for him. And Elijah passes him by, cast his cloak on him, verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, try to look at, you see the echo, right, of Luke 9. Try to look at this situation through Elisha's eyes. He's out there plowing his fields with the servants. This three-year drought has just ended, so this would have been the first planting season in years that these fields have been plowed. So this is joyful work for him. It's not a drudgery. His mood is no doubt glad. He'd surely heard of Elijah's triumph on Mount Carmel against the evil prophets of Baal. And it's entirely possible that Elisha was there as an eyewitness because crowds of people came to see that. And if so, this wasn't the first time he'd laid eyes on Elijah. Either way, he knew who the prophet was because Elijah had this distinctive, rugged, leathery look about him. So he immediately knew uh, who Elijah was when when he suddenly appears and throws his mantle 
on Elisha and walks away without saying a word. This was Elijah's style. And Elisha immediately recognized the prophet. He seemed startled for a moment because by the time he recovers his wits enough to respond, Elijah has kept walking. He's far enough away that Elisha, it says, has to run to catch up to him. And Elijah, in his distinctive way, seems to just materialize out of nowhere and without warning. He does this frequently throughout the Old Testament accounts. He just materializes. And, and, and that must have been what this seemed like to Elisha. He's out there plowing and suddenly the prophet appears, throws his mantle on him, walks away, keeps walking. And after a few minutes thought, Elisha realizes this is the famous prophet and he means something by this. He knew what the gesture with the mantle meant. It was symbolic. So he runs after Elijah, catches up with the prophet, stops him, and again, notice carefully what he said, verse 20, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah replies, go back again for what have I done to you? Or to paraphrase, by all means, go. I'm not stopping you. You don't need my permission. I'm not the one calling you. God is. And again, there's an obvious similarity between Elisha's response and the guy in Luke 9.61 who said to Jesus, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. See the similarity, right? That stands out on the face of it. But there is also a significant difference between that guy and Elisha. The Luke 9 fellow is balking at following Christ with his whole heart. His request is an excuse for a delay. He's pretending to follow Christ, but he's looking back longingly at his family and the comforts of home. And no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Elisha, on the other hand, is decisive. He's determined to follow Elijah. And when he asks to go back and say farewell to his family, his motive is exactly the opposite. The expression is different. Remember, the guy in Luke seems to be asking for time to settle his affairs. Elisha says, let me kiss my father and my mother, indicating a, a true eagerness to say a final goodbye. He wants to cut the tie to home and, and family with absolute finality, and that is obvious from what he did. First Kings 19.21, he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. So he not only sacrifices one of these 12 teams of oxen, kills them, but he also burns the yoke, the harness, and the plow using these wooden and leather instruments as fuel for the fire, and that's the end of it. He can't go back to plowing. When he put his hand to the plow for the last time, it was in order to destroy the plow, thereby guarantee that he would never look back. The act of burning his plow sealed his decision to follow Elijah. It, it dramatically shows that this is an irreversible change of careers for Elisha. No need to keep his farm tools. He was never going to be a farmer again. This was not an attempt to delay. On the contrary, when Elisha goes back home, it's for the briefest possible final visit with the express intention of severing his home and family ties once and for all. He seems to have gathered a, a very large crowd to say goodbye because the flesh of two oxen would be enough to feed an army. 
which suggests that Elisha actually called together his entire community to announce his departure, which also would have had the effect of sealing his decision once and for all. There's no backing down now that the whole community knows he's been called to serve the Lord full time. In other words, every action you see from Elisha seems to have been carefully designed to underscore the finality of his decision. That's what Jesus is calling for. Elisha also apparently wanted to close every escape hatch so that he would never be tempted to turn back. And because after a public goodbye feast like this, it would be utterly humiliating for Elisha if he ever gave up and went home. So this eliminated that temptation forever. The slaughter of his oxen, the burning of his farm tools also eliminated everything that would ever draw him back so that the only remaining link to his old life were his parents. And Elisha kissed them goodbye as well. And then immediately, it says, he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. What's important about Elijah's response to his calling is not the ceremony and sacrifice of that team of oxen. The vital lesson for us is the finality, the urgency, and above all, the total irreversible commitment he made. That is what Jesus calls us to. That's the point Jesus was making when he turned away those would-be disciples in Luke 9, and that is what every one of us should aspire to. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the sin of half-hearted faith, double-mindedness. We see so much of ourselves in these three would-be disciples and their lukewarm responses to Christ. And it's easy even for those who begin well to lose focus or to be distracted, in, especially in this noisy, media-driven culture that we live in. We remember that even the church at Ephesus, founded by the Apostle Paul, pastored by the Apostle John, left their first love within one generation. We don't want to do that. Lord, draw us close, purge our hearts of any double-mindedness, all superficiality, any hesitation, rid us of those things, and give us grace to be wholehearted disciples of Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.